In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. We actually have good news yes on the perspectrum this episode was straight up a good time to research Mm. for and read about um yeah i'm I'm excited this is a stark contrast to last week's episode last week's episode was so doom and gloom and so Mm -hmm. depressing and we were definitely talking about issues that were really important but i am actually very excited to do this episode and Mm -hmm. to not be depressed at the end of it like i feel i feel pumped for this shit dude me too i'm ready to go i'm ready to go okay so our first segment we are talking about uh the recent uh off-year elections that occurred in a bunch of states uh that just occurred yesterday and so we'll be reporting on uh how things turned out and then for our second segment we're going to be answering a question uh about republican policies Specifically, like we heard a bunch of Republicans in the in the first Republican debate advocate for abolishing the Department of Education. So, what's with that? Should we be (laughs) abolishing the Department of Education? And so, we're going to try to unpack that question. Yeah, yeah. I guess this uh, this week's theme, I would Mm. say, and I would I would actually say this week's theme, even somewhat for the section the the segment about the Department of Education, which Mm -hmm. I'll explain why when we get to it is kind of uh it's kind of the opposite of that song that you sometimes sing on the pod (laughs) the opposite of we are so fucked yeah (laughs) fuck 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 (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and instead it's more like a we're slightly less fucked (laughs) not quite so so fucked yes i would say that that is right. And one of the reasons we're not so fucked is because Democrats did pretty well last night. Yeah. Well, and not just not just Democrats, but just True. like leftist ideology did well. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Leftist Absolutely. ideology did well because it's not just it's not just the Democratic Party that did well. We saw ballot measures mm-hmm. that overcame red states mm-hmm. to make the right choice. Yeah. Exactly. Like it was yeah. just I almost almost everything that good that could theoretically have happened yes. last night happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that awesome. is amazing. It was awesome. That's so rare that we get to celebrate that. Yeah. I oh. don't think I've ever been happy with the results of an election. Like I've had I've oh, had really? elections. I've had elections where I was relieved. Mm-hmm. Um like twenty twenty two, twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah, I guess I guess somewhat I was I was excited about when Northam got elected. Mm-hmm. I was somewhat I was somewhat excited when Northam got elected, but yeah. like, but you know, this is the first time that I'm feeling seriously happy with the results. Yeah, and there's not like a yes but I, to it. I totally agree, and like a lot of coverage that I was reading kind of com- is trying to put it in the context of like what to expect in 2024. Yeah, but. Like all of the coverage itself 
is basically saying it's not indicative of 2024. So we don't need to like cast that pall over over this. I mean, we can talk about it a little at the end, maybe, but like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like uh, that's historically the most relevant thing. Historically, though, it does often like it's it is often a pretty good gauge and indicator of how things are going to turn up. I mean, let's not forget the uh, the off year election in 2017 in Virginia, which uh, ended up handing over control of the governor's mansion to Ralph Northam, Democrat at the time, uh, that also made things very close to the Democrats having control of the legislature, which Mm -hmm. would then set them up to take control of it two years later. That was a pretty good predictor of how the midterms in 2018 turned out. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Interesting. So you're thinking like the gubernatorial election was a good indicator of the following midterm year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I guess I'm like, yeah, well, we can get into it. We can get into it. But overall, 37 states had elections at some level. Um, which is actually stunning. That was remarkable to yeah. me. I was kind of blown away. We're in the year, it's an odd year and 37 states had elections. Um, but there were a few key ones that like actually like were either a surprise or like actually made like a pretty big difference. Yeah. Um, so first off was uh, the election in Kentucky where yeah. incum- incumbent governor uh, Andy Bashir won re-election which may sound like not that big of a deal, but we're talking about Kentucky. (laughs) And uh, we're talking about a state that that Joe Biden lost by 26 points. And Bashir, who had had won in his last election by I think like half a point or less than half a point, uh, beat his opponent, Daniel Cameron, by five points this year, which which is just remarkable. That's like, that's a huge success. Yeah. And one thing I would say, though, is that this shouldn't be too surprising for mm-hmm. people that were following the race and have kind of been following Andy Bashir's uh, career in Kentucky. I mean, he's definitely no hardcore leftist, but sure. like he's also in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. somewhat that can be overlooked. But um, he actually enjoyed a significant approval rating in fact he had he's actually one of the most popular governors in the united states so his overall approval rating was 60 percent that's his overall approval rating and among republicans among republicans his approval rating was 43 percent even republicans are you know kind of like him at this like at this point Uh, almost yeah 43 percent you just you don't see that very often this was a Mm -hmm. very popular uh democratic governor he oversaw a budgetary surplus in Kentucky. Um, he oversaw the uh, the administration of the American Rescue Plan and the funding from the federal government uh, towards support for the state. Um, he he was lauded for his leadership during the COVID nineteen pandemic, in which uh, he held nightly briefings about the status of of the the state and what was going on. Um, he responded very well to a severe flood that ended Mm. up destroying a lot of parts of Kentucky. And, um, he competently was able to administer the rebuilding of the, of those areas. Um, this was a popular and effective governor. Yeah. So it shouldn't surprise people too much that he was able to eventually win. And 
I, I actually saw some some debates that he was having with his opponent where mm-hmm. Uh, th- the thing is, Republicans, even in red states, understand that abortion is not a winning issue yes. for them. Yep. They understand that. His opponent, uh, Daniel Cameron, would be asked in these debates, hey, you you supported these uh, these abortion laws that would allow for no exceptions for abortion. Like, do you still support that? And he would be like... Well, you know, if somebody passed, uh, if the if the legislature were to pass a law that had exceptions, then I would totally vote for that. And it's like, but would you fight for it? He's like, mm-hmm. well, if they passed it, I would totally vote for it. <laughs> and then uh, Bashir comes in and he's like, okay, so he's not answering the question, but I'll give you a direct answer. Um, yes, I do believe that we should be fighting actively for uh, for abortion rights. Yeah, I'm giving you a straight answer. I'm telling you who I am. Yeah. and it's like. People aren't stupid. They can smell a rat when they see one. Totally. I think that's a theme definitely for the night, and I think really for the the last uh, midterm election is in as well, is abortion is a losing issue for Republicans and a Democrat and Democrats are reaping the benefits yes. of that. Yes. Absolutely. And nowhere was that more true than in Ohio. Uh, this was a really exciting outcome. Again, I think mm. similar to to Andy Bashir, not the most surprising outcome um, if yeah. you're paying attention, but really exciting, and it, it was definitely a nerve-wracking uh, experience going into this. So Ohio passed a ballot measure that enshrined the right to an abortion in the Ohio state constitution. Woo! Which is fucking awesome. That is yeah. really, really great. Um, even even prior to Roe versus Wade being overturned, Ohio had one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. Yes, yeah. This is like if you would just if you yeah if you were just looking at the makeup of the government and like the makeup of the the laws like at this point or prior to Roe, like you would think this is not going to happen. Similar to kind of. Not exactly the same, but similar to kind of Kansas. But again, abortion is a losing issue for Republicans. Abortion restriction is not popular. And it is something that Democrats can effectively organize around. And so this ballot measure um, faced a lot of challenges. So earlier this year, uh, there was an effort by the Republican uh, uh, government to attempt to make it more difficult to pass this uh, referendum and amendment to the Constitution, to raise the bar to qualify for the amendment. And Democrats were able to effectively like organize around that like very obscure change um, to, to prevent it from going into effect. And as a result, um, they were able to pass this uh, constitutional amendment in Ohio, which passed by 12 fucking points yeah which is crazy not even close not even close this 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 one analysis i was reading about was really interesting too so it was this was analysis by politico so it was looking at like the 80 counties in ohio uh which had reported completed results um and they found that the yes side so voting to support the amendment exceeded biden's 2020 margins uh, by about 10 points um, on average in counties where Democrats were like where Biden lost. Right. 
So the yeses that delivered this victory and like in like counties where he won, like the yes side overperformed Biden, but like by a much smaller margin. And so it's remarkable to see that like not only is this Democrats coming out to vote in like a midterm election, but also like potentially counties where Biden lost significantly, like more conservative folks delivered, potentially delivered this uh, amendment to the Ohio Constitution in favor of enshrining abortion, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And I think that there's some important things that we can actually take from this um, going forward. The Republican strategy regarding abortion has been trying to frame the Democratic side as the uh, unreasonable people that want you to basically be able to kill a baby up to the point of birth. Yep. And that is what they went with in their ads attacking this. Mm -hmm. That was their whole strategy. It's like, this is an extremist measure to try to uh, allow for the killing of babies up until the point of birth. Yeah. And what we should take from this is that people are seeing through that shit. That is not a solid strategy. Most people understand abortion enough to know that most abortions that actually take place happen uh, within the first trimester, Mm -hmm. right? And the ones that don't happen in the first trimester are usually happening due to complications, all right? Sometimes it might be due to to lack of access. Sometimes it might be due to uh, lack of financial ability, but most of the time it's, there's some type of crisis that will happen Mm-hmm. Some type of crisis that occurs, and uh, in order to uh, protect the health of the mother, you have to you have to get an abortion. Yeah. The problem is all of these states that do have those abortion bans, even if it's just like a fifteen week ban, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is the way that hospitals interpret the laws is by basically saying, all right, unless you are dying on the operating table right now, yeah. you don't get an abortion. Yeah. That's, Even exceptions that's, are not very effective at protecting yeah. pregnant people. Exactly. Exactly. Even exceptions are not necessarily effective. And, you know, there have been cases in which, uh, in which parents have basically been told, like, this baby will be alive for two minutes mm-hmm. when they're born, yeah. and then they will just die. Yep. And then... They're forced to carry it to term. Yep. Like that is why you don't have restrictive laws on abortion. It's not yeah. that we want late term abortions. We don't want late term abortions. And the way to prevent late term abortions is by having more access at an early at an early time during pregnancy. Totally. That's how you prevent late term abortions. Yeah. The problem with having bans on late term abortions, it's not to say like, yes, we want late term abortions. Yes, we love killing babies. It's we don't want the government to make a decision involving somebody's health that should be between them and their doctor. Totally. All right. That's, yeah. that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. And it looks like people are seeing through that Republican straw man. And even in a red state like Ohio, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a losing issue for Republicans and it can potentially be a winning issue for Democrats. Totally. So one of the big things that Democrats should take from this is fucking run on issues. Yeah. Don't run on people <laughs> run yep. on issues. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. The issues won in this case. Yeah. This is just an issue. <laughs> yeah. And, and in it fact, won by 12 uh, fucking points. Not only did uh, did abortion win in Ohio, marijuana won in Ohio. I know. 
And Ohio, in fact, I, yeah. I was actually kind of surprised by this. Abortion apparently got uh, 3,000 more votes than marijuana. Wow. Which I was a little surprised by. Yeah. But, but like they got around the, like around the same margins, mm-hmm. around the same margins of victory in terms of uh, marijuana and, and uh, abortion. Yeah. And this was also Ohio a is now legalized marijuana. Initiative. Yeah, this was yeah. also a ballot initiative. Yes. To, um, yeah, not was, even decriminalized to yeah, legalize, to legalize recreational to legalize. marijuana use. Yeah, fifty-seven percent to forty-three percent. Yeah, Jesus. So, yeah, <laughs> I have so many. I have so many thoughts on this. One thing that I think is really funny, and like, I just, I wasn't trying to come across this. I just kind of did while I was looking at this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember uh, Rick Santorum? Do you remember oh that guy? Oh, my God. Yeah, from all that time ago. Yeah, I remember him from yeah. years, uh, years ago. I didn't realize that he was still, like, doing anything. Mm. Um, but, like, he he weighed in in this Hill article mm-hmm. on uh, Ohio. And his commentary on this is just so telling of, like, like it, it, this is kind of one of those moments where, bro, shut up. You're saying the quiet part out loud. Right? <laughs> don't, don't admit this. Yeah, he was saying the quiet part out loud before it was cool, honestly. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, so he, in, in response to this, he was, he was on Newsmax and he said, quote, thank goodness that most of the states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because pure democracies are not the way to run a country. <laughs> so okay. if you yeah, let people yeah. actually decide, you know, on how many freedoms they should have, mm-hmm. like they're going to make the wrong choice. You know, you can't let people decide what type of freedoms they have. You have to let me, a self-important theocrat. Yeah. Yeah. I I, okay. like, I, have, I have so many thoughts about all this. First off, <laughs> first off, uh, I was have, I was thinking the exact same thing, like as w- the counterpoint to Santorum's point, which is what a remarkable failure of <laughs> our representative democracy at the state level that so many... Yeah. Like issues in the last few elections have been overwhelmingly decided and supported by ballot measure. Yeah. Like how absurd and how frustrating that it takes putting a measure on the ballot that gets overwhelming public support to like raise the minimum wage in Florida and like put, you know, legalize marijuana in various states and like protect abortion, all of these things that should be normal legislative yeah. activities. These are not like fucking like defining new civil rights or whatever. This is just normal yeah. legislative type activities that require direct democracy to implement in these states whose state legislatures have fucking failed them. Yeah. It's, and yeah, and it's no surprise yeah. that it's like Republican I, legislatures that have failed. Yeah. yeah. I just, I... I know that I'm the one that's that brought this up and I'm kind of platforming this, but I I don't know why the hill was interviewing this guy. Like we don't need to spread Santorum anymore. <laughs> nice. Good one. Good one. Um, Google it. Yeah. <laughs> don't Google Santorum. Or at least Google it. Use Google a private it. browser. Google um, <laughs> um the other thing I wanted to say about like abortion in Ohio and and kind of like the abortion trend recently um the main thing i think is like it's really hard to make the case that democrats are being like extremists when they're basically just saying maybe we should like have reasonable abortion laws and republicans are saying 
like banning abortion or six week bans or all this stuff. Like it's it's just not intuitively appealing to be like, oh yeah, yeah, that six week thing when people you don't even know you're pregnant, that's like the reasonable middle of the road position. Like even if like just be just as a matter of discourse, it's like, no, that it's a brand new position that has only been around yeah. for like a year or two. So how can that be the most yeah. reasonable and middle of the road one? Yeah. I would just like to point out, so um when when my wife and I did IVF, like as soon as the implantation actually happened, technically that counted as like three, four weeks pregnant mm. right wow. off the bat. Wow. That's crazy. That's think about that. Crazy. Just think about that the next time someone's talking about a six week abortion ban. Yeah. Just think about that. Yeah, totally. And I think that leads to my other thought about this is like, it's also really hard to make the case that Democrats are the extremists when yeah. we, even if you're trying to keep your head in the sand, you can't ignore the stories, both like in yeah. news, in the media, and personal stories. This is affecting people that each of us know yeah. that are, you know, about people being prevented from being able to get abortions when intuitively we believe they should. Like we, you yeah. keep, we keep hearing about these stories where or women or people who, be, who become pregnant are like forced to nearly die before a doctor can intervene, terminate a pregnancy to save their life. Yeah. Or like, or, well, was, or it like that, was it that fucking uh, teenagers that? who are forced to travel across state lines went to like terminate a pregnancy resulting from like statutory rape. Like yeah. these, and then are, there was, yeah. And then there was that fucking, what was it? It was either North Dakota or South Dakota governor that basically said like, what was asked about the 10 year old and mm -hmm. basically was like, Oh, well, little girls love playing with little dollies. Yeah. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You yes. don't have to breastfeed a dolly. Yeah. You know, yes. you don't have to, you don't have to put your body in physical at physical risk <laughs> with a dolly. I, I would yeah, just like absurd. to point something out. So if there's one thing that being the partner of a pregnant woman has taught me, mm. has reinforced into me, is that, look, I am, I am so excited about being a father. I'm so excited about having a child. And I'm excited about the pregnancy. Like every time I put my hand on, uh, on, on Jess's tummy and I feel a kick, like I get excited. Mm -hmm. right? I, I will say, I get it. I have an emotional connection to that child, even though, even totally. though she's yeah. not born yet, I yeah. do have that. However, the amount of shit that Jess has to go through mm -hmm. that involves pregnancy, yeah, especially with her because it's a higher risk pregnancy, the gestational diabetes that she's having to regularly take insulin for, mm. the regular checkups, which if we didn't have decent insurance, that would cost a fuck ton of money. Yeah, like all of the the financial the financial burdens of pregnancy and the health risks of pregnancy, this has really reinforced to me that nobody should have to do this unless they really want to. Yes. Nobody yeah. should have to go through this unless they want to. I think the greatest success of the pro-life uh, propaganda, which they are, thank goodness, fucking squandering with all these extremist bans, yeah. is, a, is setting up a false dichotomy between passionate love for 
our babies, for our pregnant partners, for our pregnant partners' pregnancies, like setting up a dichotomy between that powerful paternal and maternal love for even an unborn, you know, fetus. Yeah. And setting it up against the right to choose what happens to your body, even after you've begun to, no offense, host a parasitic organism. (laughs) 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 Like setting up that dichotomy and making people believe it is like the biggest success that they've ever had. And I'm I'm glad yeah. that it's and yeah, the, the people that should be getting pregnant are the type of people that, you know, are are like like Jess and me that are excited about it, that yeah. wanted this, that mm-hmm. had to actually go through a bunch of hoops. I'm not saying everybody should have to go through the hoops that we did. Sure. Um, to, yeah, to, yeah. To, but to boy, you proved that you want to be pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Like nobody should have to go through this unless they really want to. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of people believe that in Ohio, Mm -hmm. even Republicans, um, even more conservative people, uh, a significant chunk of them are not okay with these abortion bans. Mm -hmm. And we need to, that can, that can help lead to electoral victories with parties. If parties are, uh, if Republicans continue to make abortions a huge part of their platform and if Democrats continue to make it a part of their platform to protect it. And yeah. we saw that very clearly, very evidently in Virginia. Ah, home state. Our home state. Home state of Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I was proud. I was proud to be from Virginia last night. Yeah, so the situation in Virginia was precarious to say the least. So Virginia has a Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin. Until last night, there was a Republican state house um, and Democrats held the Senate by like, what, one or two seats? It was almost nothing. Two seats. Yeah. And so the key to Yunkin implementing his agenda, which a key part of was advocating for a 15-week abortion ban in the state, um, was gaining control of the Senate, the Virginia Senate. Um, And they didn't. Yeah. They did not one, Mm -hmm. but they did not... but they did not take control. But yep. not only did they not can take control of the Senate. Uh, so in Virginia, um, you have the state Senate and you have the House of Delegates, which is basically like the state level House of Representatives. The Republicans had control of the House of Delegates and they lost it. Fuck yeah. They lost it. Yeah. Which so, is tough because so much yeah. of Virginia's population is concentrated in like, is like either concentrated in, 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 democratically controlled dense areas or republican controlled rural areas like yeah taking the the house of delegates is tough yeah uh, so at this point new york times has called uh 53 for democrats and 48 for republicans there's one seat that is still uh, that has still not been called yet um but the republican is ahead in that so it is very likely going to go to the republican um with over 95% reporting in so i I, I think it's probably safe to say that's probably going to end with the Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that would make the final breakdown 51 to uh, 49, which again, that's a one Too seat close. majority. Yeah. You know, yeah. but that's still, but that's still a majority. That means that they have control. And look, one of the things that we've been seeing happen in purple states is that purple states with a one seat majority often tends to get more done with that one seat majority mm. than 
heavily blue states get done with super majorities. Hmm. I mean, we've been seeing that happen in Minnesota. Um, Minnesota has been killing it. Mm -hmm. So at this point, in two years, when the governorship is open again, uh, because Virginia doesn't have, I was going to say up for re-election, but uh, Virginia does not have consecutive governor terms, so it's not going to be Glenn Youngkin. Mm -hmm. It is very possible that a Democrat, a Democratic governor could win. And if we're able to hold on to the House of Delegates, because like this, the Senate won't be up for re-election, then there could very, it is very feasible that there could be a trifecta in Virginia again in two years. Unless fucking Terry McAuliffe runs for fucking governor Unless again. fucking Terry, <laughs> fuck Terry McAuliffe. Oh my God, that was the stupidest... Oh my God, that was the stupidest decision. Guy think, like, <laughs> guy thinks. Oh, I beat Ken Cuccinelli. Literally, the only Republican in Virginia at the time that could have possibly lost. Mm -hmm. Like, it was, it was crazy. It was <laughs> that election. It was the first election that I ever voted in. Mm -hmm. And it was like he, it was the worst possible candidate that the Democrats could have chosen, mm -hmm. running against the worst possible Republican that the Republicans could have chosen. And then he thought, oh, well, I must be a popular candidate because I won in that election. It's like, dude, you... No. You fucking sucked. <laughs> you just didn't you were a terrible suck governor. as much in that You election. just didn't suck as much as the fucking cooch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The dude that was straight up trying to, uh, trying to ban uh, anal and oral sex among consenting adults... Yeah, which is a losing. That was an issue actual thing that he was running. That was an actual thing that Cuccinelli was running on at the time. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Oh man, if only those kinds of bands weren't now represented in the Speaker of the House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh we'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, as I kind of alluded to earlier, oftentimes, uh, what happens in Virginia off-year elections does, to some level bode well or poor or or poorly for the national election in the next year so hmm. again i i use the example of in 2017 you had ralph northam take the governor's mansion and become very close to to taking the the house of delegates and then in 2019 uh democrats did take control of the house of delegates and got a trifecta which, you know, then Biden won in 2020. And then, of course, we know that uh, Democrats won big in 2018. And then in 2021, you saw Youngkin win the governor's mansion and Republicans take control of the House of Delegates. And then in 2022, you saw Republicans take control of the House of Representatives. Now, it might not have been as big mm. of a red wave as we thought it would be, but honestly, Youngkin didn't win by much either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was those last several elections have been a pretty decent predictor. Now, it's not the end all be all, but this could potentially bode well for the Democrats' chances in 2024. Mm, that would be really exciting. That would be exciting. I would love to see Virginia go again for a Democratic president. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not just I'm not just talking about Virginia oh, going for a Democratic president. I'm yeah. talking about I'm talking about generally. Overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah overall. Yeah. I think I think that Virginia, at least on a presidential level, I wouldn't say it's a solidly blue state. Don't become complacent. Yeah. But it's, it's been definitely consistent. been trend. It's been pretty consistent for yeah. a while. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay, one other thing that well, I have two other things I want to call out. One is in Pennsylvania. 
Democrats held control of a Supreme Court seat in Pennsylvania, um, which is really important because we know there's going to be election fucking shenanigans. And so having someone uh, on the Supreme Court or, or in that seat in one of the biggest battleground states uh, with a huge electoral college is going to be really super fucking important, um, which is also super exciting given that Democrats also put a Democrat on the Supreme Court in Wisconsin earlier this year. Um, so we don't have to talk too much about this, but definitely an exciting development for sure. Um, one other thing I want to mention are school boards mm. because it's, a you know, it's, it's, obscure because there are so many tiny fucking school boards but they're like pretty important and they're a very hot topic right now and then it's been they've been an area of focus for conservative groups specifically um and so the american federation of teachers said that uh candidates who publicly were endorsed by conservative groups such as moms for liberty or the 1776 project lost about 80 percent of their races nationally which is a pretty strong rebuke of the, you know, book burning, um, yeah. anti trans school board level agenda from these conservative organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a bunch of like individual cases where specifically like school boards that had either implemented or attempted to implement really onerous restrictions on, you know, LGBTQ students or, uh, eliminate books or, you know, prevent them, like removing them from the libraries or stuff like that. There were a bunch of examples of like school boards that implemented those policies flipping for Democrats this year, which they're supposed to be unaffiliated positions, I think, in most places. But um, when you have people vocally talking about anti-trans issues and banning like history books, you kind of know which side of the aisle those folks are on. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so like candidates who support the LGBTQ students and accurate representations of history and representations of minor like minority and vulnerable groups in our libraries won pretty big. So not everywhere. Like Demo Republicans definitely made some progress, flipped some school boards, but definite progress for uh for more liberal candidates on the hyper-local Now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, A Good Actually. So Nathan, what is A Good Actually? Michael, we do Good Actually because the world sucks. Yeah, it does. Boo. But sometimes, when you take a good hard look around at all of the refuse and mm -hmm. decomposing banana peels nice. and, you know, uh, garbage juice that seeps through those tiny holes in garbage bags and, you know, gets all on the road. And then uh, then the sun hits it and it kind of evaporates. Hot and then garbage. It sticks up the whole area. You're going hot you garbage? Know, Ugh. You know, yeah, I know exactly. Sometimes sometimes you might look closely and realize, wait a minute, that garbage juice is actually not garbage juice. Oh. Uh, it's, I don't know, beer. Also bad. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Beer's great. Yeah, yeah, and no that, one is and that, uh, and that, and that garbage road. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. And that garbage bag is actually not a garbage bag. It's a cooler. Oh. It's a cooler. Okay. Right? All right. And, uh... And all you need to do is go in there and 
you know, open that cooler and just mm-hmm. have one of those nice cold beers. Wow. And then you realize, you know what? This is good. And good actually is all around us. Wow. That's, that's really touching. I really thought you <laughs> fucked that one up. <laughs> well, you brought it back. <laughs> I kind of did. I, I had no idea where it was. Ice I, cold I was, beers I was... really are all around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in my house, you know. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Mean, so, so, Michael, what is our good actually this week? Well, Nathan, our good actually is very personal this week. Mm. It was about the best voting experience of my life. Mm. <laughs> so I... For those of you who don't know, I recently moved to Seattle, Washington, and I just wanted to share how great this voting experience was because I think I am somewhat stuck in my in the my like voting paradigm that I grew up with, which is like you know you go to the local elementary school and you try to f- squeeze it in at some point in your day, and there's going to be a bunch of people on the ballot that you didn't have time to research probably, and and uh, for a bunch of positions that maybe you don't really even know what they do, and then you end up you know potentially just picking someone or or being an uninformed voter or just not setting yourself up for success as a voter. Well. This experience, for the first time ever, I saw a county administer an election to solve that. So a couple months ago, I just get my ballot in the mail. And a couple days after my ballot arrives, a booklet that's like 30 or 40 pages shows up at my door, which is my election guide. And then yesterday, when I finally got around to voting, which, again, I could have done any time over the last couple months... I sat down and I opened up my election guide. And for the 10 or 15 people on, or 10 or 15 positions on my ballot, in the front of the book, there was a description of what every one of those jobs did so that I could assess who might be a good, like, director of, or the commissioner of the Port of Seattle. (laughs) I don't know what that job does, but now I do. And I got to read about every single candidate that I was going to vote for, personal statements, their history. Um, and if it wasn't clear, I could just look them up, but there was enough information for the most part that I could use that booklet to decide who to vote for. And I did it at my kitchen table. So I took an hour or an hour and a half to read about everybody and make an informed decision rather than being rushed in the voting booth. And then once I got everything put together, I walked the two blocks over to my local Dropbox, which is one of 80 Dropboxes around the city of Seattle. And as I did, everybody I saw had a ballot on their way to the Dropbox. And I'll remind you, there was not a single, like, federal or huge ticket item on the ballot. We're talking city council members, school board, commissioners of revenue, and a referendum about, like, some affordable housing spending. This was a small election. And every single person I saw walking around those few blocks, had a ballot, and they were going to the box. And Mm -hmm. I was inspired by how many people were turning out to vote for this fucking thing and how easy it was and how seamless it was. And it's just a model for how well you can run an election to really include people. You know how I became informed about the candidates that I was was voting for? How? 
I had to moderate an entire forum. <laughs> See, that's what you have to do in Virginia. You got to fucking host a debate. Yeah, in Virginia, you have to you have to moderate a whole forum. I'm not actually joking. I moderated <laughs> an entire forum for uh, for a bunch of the local candidates that were mm-hmm. that were running in my area, hmm. and um, that's that's how I got to know them. That's harder. <laughs> it's a little it's harder. a little more difficult. It's a little more difficult. So anyway. That just really made my day, and I was proud to live in Seattle. And that's good, actually. So if you've listened to Perspectrum for a while, you know that we are anti-education. We don't like literacy. We want. We people... don't need no education. Exactly. exactly. We don't. We want an electorate that is uninformed. We want people that are not... In, you know, educated to be running the world and and all and all that stuff, just like the movie Idiocracy. Um, <laughs> that's really our goal here. And so, luckily, we're aligned with the Republicans uh, yeah. in the first debate, who have taken a, a rather surprising position to abolish the Department of Education. Yeah. Um. Which or seemingly surprising. Yes. Seemingly surprising. Yeah, being anti-education seems like it would be a losing issue. Education's good. We like education. Makes people smarter, more informed. It is a little bit strange that Republicans have been trying to abolish the Department of Education since it was established in the 80s. Yeah. Which is another another fucking example of the (laughs) Reagan rule. Yeah. Yep. All right? (laughs) We can trace back... The attempts at trying to at trying to uh, abolish the Department of Education to fucking Reagan. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, uh, betting on the Reagan rule will never make you go broke. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. And so, yeah, we got Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pence, other people on the debate stage, even Betsy DeVos, Trump's Secretary of Education, and Trump himself, if you can actually get him to talk about policy, are all trying to... <laughs> abolish the department of education yeah and so we wanted to like ask this question like i don't really know that much about the department of education you know if we try to take these motherfuckers seriously (laughs) are they right yeah so let's look at kind of on a practical level what that might mean if you were to abolish the department of education Mm -hmm. because if it were to actually happen because, because here, let, let's let's steel man the argument for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the argument is basically that the Department of Education adds a lot of bureaucracy and red tape towards already burdened local di- local school districts, burdened uh, state departments of education, um, and a lot of the things that the Department of, Edu- of Education does that would actually be like helpful, that actually is helpful, that actually makes sense, could potentially be done by other organizations. So, for example, uh, the administration of student loans, why not have that be done by the Treasury? Mm-hmm. Or the administration of, uh, of anti-discrimination, like trying to pass anti-discrimination throughout the education system, why not have that done by the Justice Department? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're trying to prevent discrimination acts in uh, in in education around the country, why not have that be done by, by the Justice Department? One of the arguments that they'll often make 
is that if you cut down this red tape, so that way, one of the things that Ramaswamy said Mm -hmm. is if you cut down this red tape, you will allow for a lot of the money that we're currently being, that is currently being spent on the department of education to basically go directly into the hands of the people that need it the most around the country. So that means, you know, the schools, potentially somewhat the parents, if we're talking about vouchers, Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a bunch of unnecessary administration. And also, and I'll even stalemate this further from a potential left-wing point of view. As it stands, the Department of Education is kind of inadequate. Like, it is seriously lacking in a lot of the things that it promises to do. Yeah. For example, yeah. one of the things that... Uh, I definitely that I definitely care about that I think is extremely important is of course special education mm-hmm. uh, as a special education student and as somebody who actually sits on uh, a board of advisors for the Virginia Department of Education I can tell you that the federal government does not do its part yeah. in order to make sure that special education is carried out in a way that is that is fair and equitable mm-hmm. so the idea act which was one of the first civil rights laws ever passed for people with disabilities. It was passed in, uh, in 1975. It would, it stands for the individuals with disabilities education act guaranteed accommodations and discrimination protections, anti-discrimination protections, protections for people with disabilities. And under that act, they promised that they would pay. They committed to paying 40% of the expenditure pure pure student for special education students 40 percent mm-hmm. yeah they pay right now less than 13 mm-hmm. percent all right however at the same time that means that they're also basically putting forth these standards of that schools need to follow in order to accommodate people with disabilities but not providing them with the funding to actually do it yeah so you know, an argument could very much easily be made from even a leftist standpoint mm-hmm. that they're kind of fucking useless to begin with because they're not really doing their job. Mm-hmm. You know, even even going beyond the idea of just special education, you know, looking at how much uh, the Department of Education spends per student on various different impoverished areas yeah. is also woefully inadequate. Yeah. So. In order to achieve uh, the national average of test scores per student, the United States federal government in the highest poverty areas spends $13,096 per student. But in order to achieve the national test average, uh, the Economic Policy Institute estimates that it would need to spend $18,231 per student. Mm. That is a major gap. Yeah. Between what they like, what they theoretically should be spending and what they are spending. So Mm. as it stands, they are woefully inadequate. Therefore, it makes complete sense to abolish the Department of Education. So here's why that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) You knew it was coming. (laughs) I think it's interesting, Nathan, that you put those sides of the argument in contrast to each other because they Mm. work against each other you know like it's pretty clear that the problems at least the the main problems with the department of education are that it's a compromise institution that is that 
is given some authority, but not a lot. Like, yeah. like, or some resources, but not a yeah, lot. Exactly. Exactly. Like one, it's, it's, it's actually very strange reading on their website. Like, reading the Department of Education website, they talk about how like, oh, like 90% of funding for schools is at the state level. And the Department of Education has this is the smallest cabinet level agency by employee count, even though it has like the third largest budget. And it's like, and and I read that and I think, so you're trying to like use very few people to spread a bunch of really important money. Yeah. How does that seem like the right trade-off? And, but to your point, like, if you're talking about red tape, if you're talking about costs, like it's actually one of our biggest bangs for buck of any of our governmental departments. They only have 4,400 employees. They've got a $68 billion budget, depending on the year. Um, but like we're talking a huge budget, only 4,400 employees. Their main thing is putting money into programs to try to like, to try to, to you know, implement these these various programs. One challenge, though, is they've got like 260 programs. And so like in a way that they're like spreading this relatively thinly across a like relatively few employees. And I think that the larger the the more compelling argument is like we need these people to be better funded, more well staffed and to have some teeth to their authority. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that Michael and I talked about yesterday when we were planning the episode is basically um, if the if the best argument that you can make against the Department of Education is that it has no teeth, mm-hmm. then the solution is give it fucking teeth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like the department has like lofty stated goals, but as Nathan described, it's like it is not able to meet those goals at its current levels. And the thing is, like, again, this overhead is relatively low. One of the solutions from Republicans is, hey, we just want to take Department of Education money and just give it in, like, block grants to states. But one of the challenges with this is that, like, even though there's not enough, there's already not enough money to fund all these different programs and all these different priorities... So if we just divide it up and give it to states, it's still not going to solve that problem. But the second thing is like having a centralized organization that's able to at least try to put it towards the right things or attempt to put it towards the right things is better than just being at the whim of whatever state gov- like government institution is in place. Like that's the whole point and idea of the Department of Education is to uh, improve equity in uh and and outcomes at the state level to be able to say yeah states control their uh education they control their education budgets but we are going to put our thumb on the scale trying to push towards um like better outcomes or outcomes that serve a bunch of different needs things like fucking programs to make sure that post-secondary education uh, is able to meet the needs of veteran students, for example. That's one of their programs in uh, under the Office of Post-Secondary Education. Like, this is providing academic, financial, physical, and social support for veteran students going to college. Things like 
providing funding and incentives to make sure that both technology and media services at various schools are accessible by people with disabilities. Like, I th and, and to Nathan's point, like, I think the problem is often that these things are only able to be half done, not yeah. that these things aren't worth doing. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about equity for a little bit. Yeah. Because the biggest reason why education in the United States is so fucking broken mm -hmm. is actually because of how decentralized it is. Yeah. So let me explain. According to the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, the state governments, on average, when it comes to um, the, the funding of K through 12 education, um, and this is as of fiscal year uh, 2021, state governments pay for about 45% of the education budget. Mm -hmm. All right. Local governments spend 44%. And, federal, and the federal government spends 11%. So here's the problem with that. Let's look at that local number. That's almost, that's close to half. Like 44% yeah. is close to half. All right. The taxes that are paid, that, that, are, that are used to pay for schools is property taxes. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that if you live in an area that is lower income, then what that usually means is that the property in that area is going to be significantly less valuable mm -hmm. because you know if you if you don't have a high income you can't afford a better you can't afford an expensive house yeah and if you don't have properties that have a significantly higher value within the area then the amount of funding that you're going to be getting from that property tax is going to be significantly lower mm -hmm. which means that the funding for that school is going to be significantly lower, which goes back to kind of the, the example that I talked about earlier, the Economic Policy Institute laying out basically what is actually spent uh, by the federal government on the highest poverty areas and what they would they, they should spend in order to achieve national average test scores. Mm -hmm. All right, pointing out that discrepancy. The thing is, this creates this cycle of poverty. Yes. Where if you grow up, like one of the biggest, one of the biggest drivers of social mobility in the United States is education. Mm -hmm. And if you grow up in a low income area, you're going to go to a school that is woefully underfunded. And if yeah. it's woefully underfunded, then you won't get the resources you need in order to get an adequate education. And if you yeah. don't get those resources, you're more likely to end up in a low income job. And it just perpetuates this cycle of poverty that continues that just continues going. And yeah. it's that decentralization, the fact that these localities that are lower income are left to fend for themselves, that is why, that, that, that I would argue is probably the biggest flaw in our education system in the United States. We tech, in theory, we have universal education. Mm -hmm. We have a universal education system, but it is not universally equitable. Yeah. So you do actually need to have some level of centralization in the funding of education, in the administration of education, or else you end up with situations like what we have right now. Yeah. Again, the fact that it's only 11% of school funding coming from the federal government is a problem, not a, not a good thing. And to your yeah. point, like not only is it on an individual level 
a, a vicious cycle or for low income folks to be to you know continue and lack social mobility and a virtuous cycle for high income folks to be able to be upwardly mobile there's a virtue and virtuous cycle in the schools themselves mm. right you have schools that are funded by high uh, value properties which get more funding well when someone decides where to move if you got kids one of the main things you're considering is not just your house and not just your neighbors but your kids school district the quality of the school that you're putting your kids into which increases demand for those houses increasing demand for those houses increases their prices which increases the funding for that school and so you are in these situations where like underfunded schools just continue to be underfunded and well-funded schools get more and better funding and like there's just no natural way out of that situation aside from centralized funding yeah Yeah. another republican argument against the department of education is less about like the fiscal side of things because ultimately like almost no republicans like some people claim that you know we'll save some money by doing away with the Department of Education. But mainly it's not a fiscal argument that they're making because they still want to spend that money on education, which hopefully doesn't become a fringe position in the years to come, but we'll see. But another argument that they make is that they want to get the federal government out of education. So like Donald Trump in one of his reelection campaign videos, uh, said that he would close the Department of Education and, quote, end education coming out of Washington, D.C. And Representative Thomas Massey, uh, who's a Republican from Kentucky, proposed a bill in 2021 to close down the Department of Education. And his reasoning uh, was that, quote, unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. should not be in charge of our children's intellectual and moral development. States and local communities are best positioned to shape curricula that meet the needs of their students. Schools should be accountable. Parents have the right to choose the most appropriate uh, educational opportunities for their children, including homeschooling, public school, and private school. So, you know, we've talked previously about (laughs) charter schools and, uh, or I actually don't know if we've talked about charter schools. We definitely talked about homeschooling on this show um, and some of the pitfalls there. But ultimately, the, the thing that they're getting at is we don't want centralized federal control of our schools. The thing is, we don't have centralized federal control of our schools. Like, the U.S. Department of Education allocates funding to try to bolster uh, you know, certain educational outcomes, but they're specifically barred from establishing schools or colleges, developing curricula, setting requirements for enrollment or graduation, uh, determining state education standards, or developing or test or implementing testing to measure whether states are meeting their educational standards. The Department of Education is about funding. The Department of Education is about research into uh, effective methods of teaching, but ultimately it's all about influence. They do not control these standards, which also seems like a problem to me. Maybe I'm just a big government liberal, but like the fact that we have, that like there are no, no matter how loose, like national required standards for 
education in this country is a decentralization problem. That's mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because on one hand, I am definitely inclined to say that, you know, just because you live in a state with some dumbass Republican governor that sure. doesn't understand science uh, doesn't mean that you should have a shitty education. Mm-hmm. And it's better to have a a stronger centralized standard of learning within the Department of Education than it would be to, you know, have a, than it no would be to have to deal with the that. state level. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, what about when the shoe's on the other foot? Mm-hmm. You know, what if it's, what if it's Donald Trump's Department of Education? Yeah. Like, enough. who is then able to create a, a centralized, I mean, I mean, look, look, look at, uh, right now he is actively, uh, speaking out against uh, trans-affirming healthcare for kids mm. in schools. Yeah. Now, if we had a really, if we had a really centralized federal government mm-hmm. and Donald Trump ends up winning election or, you know, the next time a Republican wins election, does that mean that they can then make a federal standard that says, uh, you know, t- teachers are not allowed to uh, use the pronouns that, mm-hmm. that, students want used or you know they they they're forced to out their their students i don't know if i want that as a national standard you know it's kind of it's kind of nice to know that you can live in a state where even if the federal government is doing something really stupid with that like Mm -hmm. trump definitely would if you gave that power to someone like trump he would definitely use that to do stupid shit yeah it's nice to know that there are some things that the states can do to fight back about that so i i don't know i think it i agree with you in principle but it is kind of a double-edged sword when you're talking yeah. about what is what is what if the shoe's on the other foot. Totally, I, I think I think it's a really fair point. I think it illustrates the inherent and I think like ultimately like positive protective tension of our system. Yeah, which is that by having a bunch of uh, somewhat decentralized organizations at the state government level relative to the federal government, in some ways we draw an average and call it the federal government, but we've got a lot of play on either side of that average. Yeah. Um, And so like, I I agree. I mean, it's easy to point, I, I think it's a fair point. It's easy to point out underperformers relative to, you know, average policy in the United States and say like, Hey, we should all be the overperformers on the other side. But when those underperformers end up controlling the federal government and affecting everyone, like that's, that's the inherent tension that we're working with. I think like, so yeah. So I think would I rather have no power to set standards in the department of education rather than absolute power to set standards. Yes. I would rather have no power to like set standards. (laughs) I think like, I think like they do seem to have just no teeth when it comes to trying to like, you know, influence these standards. Like I could imagine like, I don't know, some, at least some relatively loose ability to say like, you know, I don't know, teacher certification or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, The last point that I want to make is kind of a calming point. Hmm. 
So you might be hearing us talking about this and you might be hearing, holy shit, there are a bunch of Republican candidates that want to do away with this organization that is like already not doing enough, but like mm-hmm. you take away the little that it does do like, that's going to, that's going to be terrible. And you might be thinking, Oh my God, if a Republican is elected president, then that means that the department of education is just over and we're all fucked. No, no, because, and I was actually, this is something that I, I learned in my research. I was actually kind of surprised by this because I always assumed because it's a, an executive agency, couldn't mm. you just get rid of it with an executive order? But it turns out, no. Um, you would need legislation in order to get rid of it, yeah. which is why almost every single Republican president or major Republican uh, activist mm-hmm. going back to Ronald Reagan has called for the Department of Education to be abolished. You know, Reagan did it. Uh, Newt Gingrich did it mm-hmm. when he was Speaker of the House. A bunch of candidates in the 2012 primary did it. Donald Trump did it. And now a bunch of other Republicans are doing it for this current election. But it's never happened. Even mm-hmm. when Republicans do take take power, it doesn't happen because it would have to pass through legislation. It would have to it would have to happen through legislation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the time we talk about how terrible the filibuster is. In this case, the filibuster is going to prevent that from ever happening. Yeah. So even if Republicans do take control of the White House in 2024, you can rest easy. The Department of Education, like, it ain't going anywhere. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, a miscellaneous what the fuck. So Nathan, what the fuck's a miscellaneous what the fuck? Well, Michael, I'll tell you what the fuck a miscellaneous what the fuck is. So... On the show, we have a segment dedicated to particularly heinous individuals. Mm-hmm. And we have a segment dedicated to people that just make stupid, self-defeating arguments. But every now and then, there are stories that come to our attention that are just so funny and so silly and so amazing. that. Uh, but it doesn't fall under the category of an asshat or a Dershowitz bag. But it's still... It's still a story that makes us just say miscellaneously, what the fuck? (laughs) So we decided to have a segment about it. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, what is our miscellaneous what the fuck this week? Well, our miscellaneous what the fuck is about our uh, newly elected Speaker of the House. Oh, John Smith? Uh, John Smith, exactly. Yes. Uh, oh no, Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson. Basically sorry, the sorry. same. The, Basically yeah, the same. Same, same name. Basically. Generic whitey Mike Johnson. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he, um, we always knew this guy was weird. Yeah. And when I say always, I mean in the last two weeks since we knew. Yeah. Since who we this learned who was. he was. Yeah. You know, which was days ago, and I keep forgetting yeah. that he exists because he just you know, disappears from my memory because he's so <laughs> generic. But yeah. anytime I think about him, we know that he's weird uh, and he's going to have some shit in his closet. Aside from all the racism, we've learned some interesting things about representative from Louisiana, Mike Johnson. Specifically, there's been uh, an interview clip that is kind of, that has come up recently. And well, let's just say it makes you thankful that your daddy is so hands off. don't call him that (laughs) okay so what come out what what came out recently is that mike johnson uses an app in his household called 
Covenant Eyes, which is holy that sounds shit, dirty. The creepiest dirty. app. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a nun fetish, um, <laughs> especially in this context. And so, yeah. according to Johnson himself, this app, quote, it scans all the activity on your phone, on your devices, your laptop, what you have. We do all of it. It sends a report to your accountability partner. My partner right now is my son, Jack. He's Ugh. 17. So Ugh. he and I get a report all about things that are on our phones, all of our devices, once a week. If anything objectionable comes up, your accountability partner gets an immediate notice. I'm proud to tell you, my son has got a clean slate. <laughs> so basically, Mike Johnson and his son monitor each other's porn. <laughs> so here's here's I, I, here's the thing. I I got bad news for you, Mikey. Uh huh. Um, not you, Mikey. Mikey. Oh, Johnson. Mike Johnson. Mikey Johnson. Yeah. I got I got bad news for you, buddy. Teenagers are like life. Hmm. They find a way. They find a way. Secret <laughs> cell phone. Secret <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> but like, yeah. God. Imagine how fucking like that is such an invasion. That is such an invasion. That is such yeah. a repressive. Yeah. That is such a repressive way of like, and the fact that he's your like he monitors yes. your porn watching too. That is, well, I mean, that is honestly, none of any of your businesses. Yeah. What Jesus. Makes, what makes me so frustrated is like I care a little bit less that his son is monitoring his porn usage because Mike Johnson has had his whole life to become the vanilla celibate like you know person that he is but could you like there's no way that mike johnson's son was like I'm, oh sweet i came up with I'm this not okay awesome with it idea because that is a fucked up responsibility to give your child oh well yeah obviously the only thing is yeah as long as mike johnson isn't watching porn then it's fine if he is that's fucked <laughs> but there, like what's frustrating is there's almost no way his jo- his son was like hey dad i found this really cool app i think i think we should use it together it was definitely mike yeah. johnson like hey son like i pay for your device i want you to let me make sure you don't watch porn yeah and like pressure like there's almost no yeah, way there's and this not is like a subscription thing they pay no, like yeah. they like they pay like 15 bucks a month for this fucking thing seriously Oh my god, it's so fucking That's cringy. So creepy an invasion of privacy. And look, the, the, here's here's another thing to think about. Um there is actually a very direct correlation between sexual repression mm-hmm. and levels of sexual assault. All right? Societies that are more sexually repressed have more strict access to things like, you know, uh, for for sexual expression such as pornography mm-hmm. do actually have significantly higher rates of sexual assault mm-hmm. in fact one of the biggest reasons that's often cited for why there is so much uh molestation within the catholic church is because of the sexual repressive sexually repressive nature of the way that they treat priests mm-hmm. all right it's that cel- it's that you know it's that celibacy that is imposed upon them yeah. This is a well-studied phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, so totally. I think God, I just, think dude, Mike Johnson's son might be the only true incel out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought the story was just so fucked up and so weird and it's like, dude, like, come on. Leave be a little normal. Leave him alone. Hands off, daddy. 
All right. <laughs> Don't call so, him dad. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations to Mike Johnson for being this week's miscellaneous What the Fuck. And now we will end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is actually a preemptive highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, so the team that I coach has decided that they're going to throw a baby shower for Jess and me. Oh, just that's so just nice. them, and we're going to be doing that this Friday. And it's just, it's so, it feels so good to be supported by them. Like they're, you know, they're excited for me, um, and. You know, they're as a coach, I like I always try to be the one that's supportive of them, but mm-hmm. it still it still feels good to know that like they care, you know, yeah. they care back. Nice. That's yeah. great. Yeah. What about you, Mike's? What's your what's your highlight? Uh I think I think honestly my highlight is I've hung out with a bunch of friends this past weekend, which was really nice. Um Bree's been out of town and so, you know, I could have just been hanging out you know, alone and like, you know, running and exercising and do the kind of things that I do alone. But, um, you know, I've gotten to know a bunch of really cool people here in Seattle and it was really fun to be able to go and hang out with them. So that was great. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So now we'll thank the amazing people that make this show possible. So thank you to Jerry DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen for being our patrons. And thank you to Kayla for all they do to make this show possible by being our editor. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Respectrum. And you'll hear from us again. <laughs>